in Between Episode 26, a three-prong plan to find areas of promise and or promising companies in healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I was asked by a group of students from Michigan University's Ross School of Business to identify what I would consider companies or areas of promise in healthcare. It's a good question. I'm going to take a stab at the answer on today's show, but let me foreshadow coming up next month, there'll be a second episode of Relentless Health Value dedicated to this same exact topic. I have asked a panel of people from across the industry to weigh in on this same exact question. So here's what I have to say about it, but you can balance my views with theirs upcoming and decide for yourself what advice you wish to take. This question, what are companies or areas of promise in healthcare? It's kind of a simple question, but it is remarkably difficult to answer. It not only involves forecasting, which is difficult even on a good day, but promise, in air quotes, has many interpretations depending on who you talk to. Promise, to me, means not just money we can sweep off the table, but also whether that cash adds up to value for patients. Is the endeavor doing well by doing good? Or is it just simply taking advantage of a broken system riddled with opportunities for wasteful spending? I don't think promise means piling up dollar bills at the expense of patients and taxpayers. To illustrate this point, I was talking to a guy the other day who worked for an insurance carrier, and his whole job was doing these massive spreadsheets to figure out how to maximize premiums and minimize spend. And he wasn't going about it by finding high-value providers or trying to figure out how to minimize downstream costs by exalting primary care or offering up some new way to use technology or artificial intelligence to improve operational efficiency. No. He was doing it by putting mouse type in the benefit design, carving out coverage for this or that. Mouse type employers most likely wouldn't read. His company is doing great. Maybe it's a promising company to some, but I would never work there. Or if I did, I'm sure I'd get fired pretty quickly if this guy's job function in its entirety represents the gestalt of the overall organization. That being said... These companies won't change unless there are people working from within to get them on track. I mean, I do work with and consult with certain companies that I certainly cannot say I agree, and that's putting it mildly, with everything they are doing, which has nothing to do with what I'm doing. But I do make sure that anything I have a hand in aligns with my ethics. And I do feel proud when I can affect positive change or get a company with a less than stellar past to do something or pay for something, which I regard as good. So I don't think that it's not possible to get a job with promise at a company that isn't overly promising when considered from both a financial as well as a value add perspective. If you're a rabble rouser with your own moral compass and you're not afraid to ruffle feathers and climb the corporate ladder, what some would consider the hard way, go for it. This company needs more people exactly like you. 
But let's just say you want to work for a company or area of healthcare that is financially viable while also aligned with your values. If that is the case, I am going to offer up a three-prong plan that should lead you to companies or areas of promise. So here we go. Prong one. First, if you are looking for company names, I have a simple tip. Follow the money. Find a VC you think is crazy smart or has the same values as you or both and look at the companies that they are investing in. That's it. I'm not going to give you company names for one big reason. (laughs) VCs, really smart ones, get one in 10 of their bets right and feel good about that ratio. And they sit around all day making gigantic financial models. So don't get me wrong, I make a pretty tidy spreadsheet myself, but putting my money where my mouth is relative to picking corporate winners is not my day job. Prong one, follow the money. Okay, quick sidebar. This podcast reaches a whole lot of very smart people, you included. If you listen to this podcast and you have thoughts or suggestions or counterpoints or actual names of promising companies or areas of promise, shoot me a tweet, shoot me a comment on LinkedIn. In early January, as I mentioned earlier, I'll be doing an episode where a few other people from different parts of the industry weigh in on their views of areas of promise. So if your comments are unique and thought-provoking, I'd love to include them in the next episode, part two of this promise series. On to prong two. How would I recommend someone who's just beginning their career or looking for a mid-career change to locate promise in healthcare to pursue? I'm going to give you kind of an algorithm here because that's how I roll. There's three things that I would look for in both a company or an area. And if the company or area has all of these three things in spades, I'd put them on my short list, I think. Thing one, not siloed. This is what I mean by that. The company or area in question is kind of filthy with innovative partnerships. They're integrated within a constellation of entities, including some like legacy players. Things to look for if you're looking for a company that's integrated and not siloed. One thing would be that people in the company have worked for or understand customers or partners that are integral to the company mission. In other words, it's really hard to integrate with an unknown entity. So if you're creating, for example, a physician or nurse workflow solution and there's no physicians or nurses on staff or at a minimum, there's not a board of directors or ad boards every week with doctors and nurses, I'd be a little bit careful. That would be a red flag for me. Subpoint, I said doctors and nurses, the plural there is not accidental. I think one of the big barriers that doctors, and I'm going to pick on doctors here mainly because more than one doctor has been on the show and told me this exact same thing, and I'm a good listener. Doctors in particular like to create their own solutions. And there's some pretty good reasons for that because, you know, any solution a doctor is going to create works great in their workflow, especially their own workflow. Doctors demand also for really good reasons. They demand to understand the logic behind how a conclusion was reached. I mean, that's what makes them a good doctor. But you can probably spot the problem here. Both of these things enables a doctor to create a great solution for themselves. But other doctors have different workflows. And the logic of any new solution is something that they would have to not only understand, but understand why the decision tree took the form it did. And that's just arduous. There's just realities of everybody likes their own solution that fits in their own workflow and the realities of people buy what they have helped create. That's all 
Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm stuff, right? So let me get to the point of points here. Look for a company where multiple physicians from different practices have weighed in or will weigh in. Or look for a solution that is easily able to be customized by a doctor to fit within their own workflow and also views of treatment best practice. We're talking about doctors here. If the solution is for a business administrator or for nurses or for physical therapists or pick any target title within any given organization, same roles apply. And some promising companies and promising areas are not siloed in any of the ways that I just talked about. Here's thing two that I would look for in a promising company or a promising area. Either the company or kind of a constellation of companies in that area has not been sucked in by the allure of a shiny solution. You got to love the problem. So one of the things that I would look for is a love of the problem. Like if you go into a meeting and you're hearing more about how awesome the solution is and much less about how that solution is precisely nested within a gaping market need, my antenna would go up for sure. An area is promising or a company is promising, not merely and singularly because its solution is neat. It's because the company has fawned over a problem and worked hard to make a solution in its image. Number three thing I'd look for is that someone will pay to solve the problem. The product is differentiated in a way that customers truly appreciate and are willing to open up their wallets and pay for. There's a lot of companies who are definitely differentiated, but they're not differentiated in a way that the customer appreciates. And that's a pretty easy thing to happen. It it is actually strikingly easy especially if you love the solution, to become very obsessed with differentiators that overperform the market need. Those things have to be taken into consideration. Otherwise, you're not actually going to get a paying customer. And if you're working for a company that has that issue or you're working for an entire sector that has that issue, I mean, the hype cycle is real. Sometimes there's just huge clusters of companies that are all effectively doing the same thing and who are pursuing the same type of mission, but strength is not in numbers in this particular case. So prong two of the how do you find promising companies or promising areas is that areas of promise or companies of promise are going to not be siloed. They are going to love the problem and they are going to have a defined set of someones who are willing to pay to solve the problem in the way that that company or area of the market is proposing. All right, on to prong three. And this is a little bit esoteric, but I think it's super interesting and also really important if you're looking to bet your livelihood on the decision to either start work at a new company or to quit your job and go somewhere else. Prong three is going to be any area of promise or promising company. They all have one thing in common. They're innovative in some way. They're ahead of the curve somehow or other. And that innovative spark can take one of two forms, broadly speaking. You got to figure out which one is more aligned with you and your goals and your risk tolerance. Okay, so the two types of innovation that we are talking about here or that I am talking about here are disruptive innovation versus sustaining or incremental innovation. I would consider whether promise to you means to be part of a disruptive innovation that has the potential to skyrocket to transformational 
glory and really make a dent in the universe, or to be part of an organization that is sustainably and incrementally improving its product or service in a less guns-blazing fashion. If you choose to seek promise within a company looking to disrupt a market, I'm going to look around here and locate my buddy Clay Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, on my bookshelf here because he says a bunch of stuff in that book, which I would recommend. It's kind of a textbook, but once you get past the discussion of disk drive manufacturers from 1989, the middle and end is pretty great. Anyway, what Clay Christensen says is that even the most amazing individuals, and that's probably you, but even the most amazing individuals who come up with the most disruptive solve for the biggest challenge, they will not be successful if they don't manage to overcome organizational inertia or gravity. They will be left permanently stuck on the launch pad. And Zeev Neuwirth, by the way, said pretty much the same thing in his book, Reframing Healthcare. You can't disrupt much when all around you, people are clinging to the status quo like their lives depended on it. So it's really hard to disrupt within the confines of an organization geared to sustainable improvement. Why is that? Disruptive innovations tend to have lower profit margins. So well-run organizations pretty much are really good at weeding out endeavors with lower profit margins. If you are working on disruptive stuff, and you're not getting the organizational love, budget, respect, promotional opportunities, your disruptive innovation is not going to happen, probably. This is exactly why the best managed companies often are the worst at disruptive innovation. All of their processes are designed to maximize profits, and disruptive innovations are never stellar in the profit margin department. Let me give you a, a really good example here. Lots of people think that Kodak, for a non-healthcare example, failed because managers were too blind to spot the digital trends. That is not the case. Kodak had really smart managers. They failed, or let's just say had their business severely diminished, because its management was actually too good. Its management chose to invest most heavily in the most profitable product lines, which were all related to film processing. It made a really well-informed decision not to invest in low-margin businesses. You know, like, who's going to be a manager who raises their hand in the finance meeting and says that they want to divert resources from the high-performing parts of the company to a product with a really ill find possibly non-existent market that on its best day won't be as profitable per unit as their existing business. It is a tough jam to try to disrupt within the processes and norms of a company smart enough to ask you for a business model spreadsheet showing why the disruptive innovation is so promising. Chances are it won't look so promising through that lens and they will not move forward or they will not allocate heavily to helping that disruptive innovation get off the ground. And that's proven time and time again. So my advice, if you're looking toward an existing company to be your vehicle for a career in disruptive transformation, make sure that organization has a skunk works or a separate division, which is dedicated to the pursuit of transformation. Fraser Button, by the way, from Evelyn, said this in episode 202. He said, hospitals who really want to do value-based care have to have separate departments dedicated to value-based care. I mean, you cannot have the same people trying to put heads in beds in one meeting and then go into another meeting to get heads out of beds right after that. It's just it's cognitive dissonance and it just does not work. 
A lot of times, a disruptive innovation is going to cannibalize existing business. Like I said, if you're trying to be disruptive within the construct of an existing legacy player, make sure that, like I said, there's a separate carve-out business unit. Otherwise, it's just, it's not going to work. Here's another thing, if you're looking around to determine which disruptive area that you consider promising might have the most potential. Look for a first mover. First movers in disruptive technologies have a huge advantage. This is not true when it comes to sustainable incremental innovations, by the way, but for disruptive endeavors, yeah, you want to be first. And lastly, my advice is to look for disruptive companies that have gotten investments from entrenched players. Then they have the advantage of reach and, and scale the vested interest. Again, back to my integrated, you know, the obvious advantages that you have when you're trying to do pilots and whatnot, if you have an entity which is willing to help you. All right. The other kind of innovation is incremental innovation, sustaining innovation. So if you're looking to seek promise within a company looking to incrementally improve a market, here's my advice to you. Big entrenched players are really great at incremental innovation. Ones that have been around for a while really excel at making their winning products better. So if promise to you looks more like a slow and steady race, then a big company actually might be where it's at. Just recognize, though, that those companies do tend to be a bit risk averse when it comes to disrupting their own status quo. So that's something I would keep an eye on. My advice, therefore, is if you're like me and are mission driven, I'd look for whether the entrenched player is actually improving the results it's delivering or just simply looking to milk the supply chain and ever more elaborate schemes to make more money. You get it. I want to wrap this up with one danger, caution, red flag. I would tread really cautiously in any area that is shrieking and clutching its pearls about the dangers of transparency. Avoid. There's just too much transparency momentum that is mounting right now for anybody's cloak of darkness to not get some degree of ripped up. So if transparency endangers somebody's business model, I wouldn't want to be there. Or if you do choose to go there, then be a rabble rouser agitating for a future oriented business model switch up. If there's a cloak of darkness over anything that a company that you're looking to work for is doing, which you're kind of scratching your head and wondering how that benefits patients, and all you can see are reasons why it doesn't benefit patients, like I said, if your interest and your concern and what promise means to you is helping patients and something which is intrinsic to that organization's business model fundamentally is not in a patient's best interest, that's cognitively dissonant for me, but it's something that you'd need to work out for yourself. I hope that's helpful. Gave you three prongs there. Prong one, follow the money. Prong two, not siloed, love the problem. Someone's willing to pay for what you're proposing. Prong three, determine what's right for you. Are you a disruptive innovation type or are you a incremental innovation type? And pick the one that works for you. My name is Stacey Richter and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is 
automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.